0: Good morning, everybody. It is Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer, Brenda Alacy with you right at 10 a.m. If it was back in the old days, there would have been a beep three seconds ago. We are joined for the first 10 minutes by Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Good morning. Now, let me ask, how are you? Because this has been another just crazy week for our leaders in Albany and throughout the state. How are you dealing with this?
2: You know, thank you for asking, but I am fine. I have been I have been camped out in Buffalo for the last six weeks, uh, closely monitoring the situation here, which allows me to spend more time with my husband than I have in 35 years. So at a personal level, uh, I'm actually energized by able to fight for my local community, but also to not be on a plane at 5 a.m. or be driving across the state every day. So I can be very focused on the needs of this area. So I'm in in good shape, good health, and, uh, you know, far better off than many of my fellow Western Yorkers, and that's why we're fighting so hard to give them some relief and figure out a game plan to get us to a far better place.
3: You're still speaking to your husband since you're spending so much time together.
2: (laughs) But yeah, we're still, You know, we've actually said this could either make or break couples, and, uh, you know, we are feeling very good about, you know, how we've uh, managed the responsibilities at home and how we're managing, you know, his full-time work at home, my full-time work uh, was at home, and now it's in the office to uh, create that little bit of space, but it's going very well, and we're very fortunate.
3: Good to hear. Now, when you're um, looking to possibly reopen the state under Governor Cuomo's plan, are you going to do that region by region, county by county? Have you made any decisions yet on the possible strategy for reopening?
2: Absolutely. And when the governor came to Buffalo just uh, earlier this week and I was there with him, we had the opportunity to talk about how as much as we view ourselves as one state, upstate, downstate, with, with in respect to many areas, one area where we need to break apart is our response and how we talk about the reopening because no doubt about it new york city and our friends too in downstate have been hit so much harder than we have and god bless them and we keep them in our prayers for what they're having to endure but because people upstate had earlier warning that this was hiding our way Uh, we have been able to prepare we have greater hospital capacity now because of decisions made on elective surgery early on we have more people that have been engaging in social distancing literally wearing the mask and staying apart from each other at least six feet and not going into their workplaces if they're not essential so we're better prepared having seen the early warning coming out of new york city so the governor announced that he has asked me to head up the western new york reopening initiative but the first words ahead of that was the public health response and reopening initiative so they go hand in hand but that's what i've been able to focus on so we will not be held back in our now in our reopening even in small phases and, and phased in very thoughtfully and, and and using a lot of smart metrics we will not be held back based on what's happening in new york city at this time that's that was a positive development for our region
0: And let me ask you, what exactly are we looking for? I know we're looking for a downward trajectory. We are looking for um, less hospitalizations. uh, But are we also looking for uh, easier access to tests before we get into that phase? And then what would that first phase look like? Would it be similar to the one released by the federal government or maybe a little more limited at first? Well,
2: what the federal government recommended, and this was a few days ago, is that no area should reopen, no state should reopen unless they've seen a downward decline in numbers over a 14-day period. And so you look at some states that have jumped the gun, and I know the president wasn't happy about that. So we're not... Bound by that, but we're certainly taking in all the data from the different experts as well as what we know about our state more than anyone. So, yes, it will be phased in, but testing, as you mentioned, is so critically important. And I'm very proud to say that this week there'll be uh, even more attention on Western New York with respect to expanding the availability for more people to be tested our frontline workers, our healthcare workers, of course, but also we view frontline workers as people in the grocery stores and the delivery people and the people driving the buses. So the people still had to have a lot of contact with uh, individuals in the public during this, this closed phase. We want to make sure that we can get their tests as well as expanding to nursing homes and doing more there. So, yes, you're absolutely right. And what it's going to look like is being determined as we speak. We're looking at, I guess you'd call it the low-hanging fruit, and I would put in the category of that, let's start talking about getting our hospitals back up and running in a way that's very... Uh, safe for people to come in, that they won't be worried that they're going to contract the virus by going in for the elective procedure. But I think that's important, but it's also important for public health. It's also important for the economy. There's so many jobs that are hinging on our public health institutions, our hospitals, and I've been in contact with all the leaders just in the last 48 hours to talk about what our strategy will be there. So that'll be an important sign that some sense of normalcy is opening. But there's also industries that really just lend themselves to a safe environment for their employees and for customers if they're a customer-based business. And we're talking to them. I talked to some of the major manufacturers on Friday, what safeguards they've already put in place, how we can talk about reopening those. So I think industries like, you know, just nothing firm, but you look at something like outdoor construction and some of the outdoor activities. They're more likely to open than a small restaurant where people would have you know, an impossible—you know—it's so small that they can't even sit six feet apart if, if they're required to. So we're look, we're looking at it in a sense of developing policies here in Western New York because we're really a microcosm of the rest of the state that can be applied elsewhere. And I think that's an important responsibility that I have, and I've been reaching out to every business leader, you know, the clergy. Uh, not-for-profits. I mean, there's a lot of entities involved, more than just the business community, and and I want to be very focused on that as well.
3: Kathy, if uh, a frontline worker is listening right now, uh, what would you tell them about how they would be, uh, how would be determined who would be tested first, or where do they go for the antibodies? What are some of the logistics you could share, or is it still being worked out?
2: Well, there are places that are doing testing now, but you call for an appointment, and you know we've expanded on the east side of Buffalo because we had seen a spike in people contracting the virus. There, one of the reasons is because many of the people live there are the frontline healthcare workers. When you think about it, or they're the ones who are working in public transportation or in uh, you know the, the restaurants that are still open with the respect to providing curbside pickup. So. So we want to make sure that in some of the hard hit areas that we had testing expanded and we're going to be working closely with the churches as well, but also some of the pharmacies will be engaging. And that's why the governor's announcement yesterday that we will now have 5,000 private pharmacies across the state now be able to offer testing in the very near future. That is also going to open up the ease of access to the testing, which is going on uh, throughout Western New York. You can find it on the Erie County website, our, our website. You can find out where to go. You call a phone number. They ask you if you're showing any symptoms, et cetera. But also now we're, we're expanding enough that you don't have to be symptomatic in order to get a test, which was clearly how we had to ration out the testing in the first case and now more people have that available to them. So they will find in the next week or so uh, far more access to testing than we have been able to provide in the past. And part of that comes from Governor Cuomo literally going to Washington, going to the White House on Tuesday, and asking President Trump to divide up the partnership. We will do the testing. We will do the you know, collection of, of specimens. We will get them to a lab. We will get the results out. But if we have a shortage of testing materials that are coming from, believe it or not, China. We have to wait for more swabs and vials and and the reagents to do testing from China. That's where we need the federal government to step in and say, "Okay, we have the relationships; we can work on the supply chain." And that's where the president and the governor came up with a a great strategy that's going to allow us to go from twenty thousand tests a day up to forty thousand, and that's that'll be extraordinary in terms of how we can make that available to people. But I do want to be clear: there's a difference between. Diagnostic testing, meaning do I have the virus today, and the antibody testing, which we're just starting to roll out, and that's to determine whether you may have not even known it, but you had the virus, and because you've developed an immunity, that you are very much a candidate to be able to go into the workplace sooner because you won't spread it to someone else.
0: Lieutenant Governor, now I might be a little ahead of the plan here, but speaking of the limited phases and the first part of reopening the state, and I, don't, I don't mean to sound negative, but is there a plan in the uh, instance that cases start spiking again to maybe pull back on that phase one?
2: I think that would just be common sense and in the interest of public health. Um, we know our hospital capacity, which is what has always been driving us. We knew the numbers were going to increase. But if most people test positive but don't need a hospital and can self-resolve at home and treat it as if it's the flu and not spread it to others you know, make sure they self-quarantine, that's different than the numbers going up and far more people flooding the hospitals again, which is the scenes we saw in, uh, a month ago in Italy. I mean, we were all struck by seeing the people that were literally dying on on beds in hallways uh, trying to get attention in places like Italy, where we have a close connection with that country. So we did not want to have that happen here. So I I think you're absolutely right. I think we have to be smart about how we start loosening the valve a little bit. But the only reason that we have lower numbers than were projected by uh, the, the Trump administration, by the CDC, by all the federal agencies, as well as our own experts, the only reason those are lower than they would have been is that people listen to their state government, they adhered to the guidelines, they stayed home, they practiced social distancing, they sacrificed and did not get together with their families over Easter and Passover and you know they've sacrificed so much and the last thing we want to do is say you did all that, we got to a good point, we're going to open, but if we do it too quickly and we're seeing the numbers skyrocket, we'll be have- we will have to go back to where we were and nobody I mean, nobody in the state of New York wants to see that happen. I think they would be asking too much of people. We, we are fighting hard to make sure that that's why we have to do it very methodically, thoughtfully, systemically, and every other way we can using data and the best knowledge we have from ourselves, our knowledge of the state, also knowing that we are going to need to have people continue to adhere to social distancing, even when you can go back to your workplace. I mean, that workplace is going to look very different. If you're on a manufacturing line, we're going to maybe expect to see plexiglass dividers between individuals on the assembly line. Maybe there won't be break rooms for a while because you don't want people to congregate. The breaks will have to be outdoors. So there's a lot of things that are going to have to happen in the workplace, and the sooner we can get that information out to the businesses, I think they'll be grateful. That's why I'm working with the Buffalo-Niagara Partnership and others who've given a lot of thought to this, and we are taking data from the various industries. The Restaurant Association, Home Builders Association, you tell us the very high standards that you will put in place. We will examine them and see if we think that they're going to be sufficient. But that's going to be very helpful to us in making sure that employees are safe and the public is safe.
3: Uh, Kathy, we know you're on a very tight schedule, so last question for you. Um, In the governor, we'll have his daily briefing at noon today, so we'll be sure to listen for that. But the state, it's been reported, has lost $15 billion in revenue. Have you talked at all about uh, possible cutbacks, tax hikes, anything like that, or is that still uh, to be determined at this point?
2: It's not determined yet, Brenda, but... Absolutely, that is catastrophic. I mean, there's no way that our budget that was devised in January and February and was is voted on at the end of March, early April uh, could have anticipated the scale of losses to our revenues. There is literally no money coming into the state because we we actually scaled back on people's tax payments, gave them a little breather, a lot of uh, normal fees that would be collected, like sales tax we we gave a breather with respect to any waiving any fines or late fees for someone, a small business who can't turn in their their sales tax. So that means less money coming into fund, you know, police, fire, schools, social services, and, you know, economic development programs that have helped places like Buffalo all these years. That is going to be a huge challenge. And what the governor did foreseeing that circumstances might require this, he has the ability to reopen the budget before our normal deadline of next year and to make changes if necessary, because, the last thing we want to do in the state of New York is to raise taxes on people that are struggling, and so that has not been discussed, but we have to talk about how we will manage what we have coming in. But the answer to all of this is for the federal government to do what the governor talked to the president about in the White House, and that is to give $500 billion in the next relief bill. We would have liked to have seen it this week, but they didn't do it. $500 billion to go to the states that are hardest hit and help us Get money back to the states and the localities that are starving for money because there's just nothing coming in so that is something that on top of managing a a pandemic a once every 100 year pandemic and trying to figure out a reopening strategy that's safe we also now have to figure out the finances and i assure you that the smartest minds in new york are, are are anticipating this right now and working out solutions
0: Well, Lieutenant Governor, it is great having someone local in Albany that close to everything going on. And we always uh, appreciate talking to you.
2: Thank you very much. Bye bye.
0: That is is Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul joining us here on Hardline. If you missed any of the first 15 minutes of the show, uh, use that little rewind feature on the radio.com app, or it'll be on demand soon at WBEN.com. We have a Loaded show for you today. Nate McMurray joining us right after the 10:30 uh, news. We have State Senator Chris Jacobs joining us after the 11 o'clock news, and after the 11:30 news, we have Dr. Mike Minio from Millard Fillmore joining us to take us into noon when Governor Andrew Cuomo will give his daily briefing. And we don't know. Earlier this week, he had one that I think only lasted 15 or 20 minutes. So. We might be back after that to take your calls on News Radio 930 WBEN. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy with you. You just heard from Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, and we thank her for joining us. Hopefully she will again in the very near future. Our next guest would have been on a ballot this coming Tuesday. Instead, he's stuck talking to us on Sunday. It's Nate McMurray. Nate, good morning. Hey, hey, Brenda, how are you too? How are you guys doing?
3: Doing fine, Nate. Hanging in as uh, everybody else is. I hope you and your family are well too.
0: We're fine. Thanks for asking.
3: Good.
0: So, Nate, uh, Tuesday would have been the special election. Now it's somewhere down the road. How has campaigning continued? Um, I know you're really good at using social media. How has that played a part?
1: I mean, I think it's an advantage for us because we have a huge advantage in the social media aspect, but we have a huge advantage in the grassroots support aspect, too. I mean, if you look at the campaign filing, we outraised Chris Jacobs, which is a bit of a miracle because he's one of the richest the, probably the richest candidate in America and we're from one of the richest families in America. And the fact that we outraised him is, is astonishing. I was shocked when I saw it. And that means his average contribution was 10 times higher than ours, but we had 15 times more people support our campaign. And that's 80%, 80 some odd percent came from New York State and 60 some odd percent came from NY27. So you can see we have a real base of support right here, not from DC, not from anywhere else, from right here. So that's kind of sustaining us through this tough time.
3: Nate, I know you had said recently that you had 37 House parties planned. Uh, what do you do now uh, to try to replace that? It's not going to be an easy thing to go door-to-door, obviously. So is it just technology that you're using, or how else are you trying to you know, reach your potential constituents in 27?
1: Well, if my staff is listening, I want to say I, I'm thankful to each and every one of them because we haven't even done – traditional fundraising all my staff does and they'll they'll tell you we're on the line all day long um providing services to people constituent services really they're 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 calling people that are on the voter list for sure and we're saying hey do you need anything are you okay are you home um and there's some kind of incredible stories that have come out of it and it's not easy because a lot of people are really struggling um and there's a lot going on in our community that a lot of people don't have direct visibility to. I mean, one of the things about not having a congressman is we do not have anybody to provide constituent services. And, you know, my campaign has limited resources, but we're doing everything we can to be supportive of people, especially people that we know need help, um, whether it's, you know, dealing with the DMV or whatever else. A lot of people are isolated alone and they don't have family to support them. So we're trying to be active in that way and trying to provide service as best we can without being Invasive to anybody either, Um, but all of our offices are closed, and we're doing fundraising as as best we can online, and we're just trying to create a positive atmosphere and a positive message from the campaign.
3: Are you able to get help from uh, Brian Higgins in the uh, NY26, and and is he willing to lend a hand for folks who really don't have any representation in 27?
1: He is. uh, Brian Higgins has been terribly supportive, and I'm very grateful to to Congressman Higgins, um, both... He's endorsed me, and he's also given us financial support to the campaign. Um, and we don't have big money coming in from Nancy Pelosi or anybody else. Again, we out-raised, we outraised someone who comes from a family that has billionaires in it. I mean, these people have private jet planes. I mean, the total number of donors for Chris Jacobs is 100 people, about, roughly. That's nothing. Um, and I, keep, want, I want to emphasize that because you can see there is not a lot of enthusiasm for Chris Jacobs. The fact that he has to run against you know, two other people in his own primary. And If you talk to these people behind closed doors, they'll tell you they do not want him to be their congressman. So I think that's actually helping us. And, and we're going into this. All the money in his account right now is from his private bank account, which is, is again, shocking. I mean, all the money he has left is from his own bank account. So we're going into this with a lot of enthusiasm a lot of momentum. Uh, we would have won on Tuesday. And I'll tell you right now, Joe, you asked in the beginning how you feeling about that. Well, miserable, to be frankly. I, we would have loved to had an election on Tuesday, but we'll be ready for June.
0: Nate, let me ask you, um, I was looking at your Twitter before the interview. Uh, you've been very critical of the president's response to the coronavirus. Is that going to play in your campaign? Have you changed your message a little now to uh, go, uh, coincide with the COVID-19 crisis?
1: Joe, you've known me for a couple of years now, three plus years I've been talking to you. I've never changed who I am. And I think I've been critical of the president when he deserves it. And, and the few times I thought he did something good, I said that was a good move. But you cannot look at his handling of this and objectively say it's been good. We have 4% of the world's population and almost 25% of the deaths. I mean, 50,000 plus deaths. And his, his, his daily press conferences are a form of self-sabotage. I don't know who's telling him to go out there and do that every single day, but it looks ridiculous. And I think a lot of people are unnerved by it. Look at his own guidelines. He's not following his old guidelines. He's telling people to liberate. But his own guidelines are saying we have to be in lockdown for 14 days of a consecutive decline in the coronavirus. So I think, it, you know, one of the jobs of, of Congress under the Constitution is to hold the executive branch accountable for poor behavior. And I think every day you're seeing poor behavior. So it's response. The fact that we see people like Chris Jacobs looking and scrutinizing everything that Governor Cuomo does, and unwilling to look at anything the president does and say, what the heck is wrong with this, when he's the guy in the chair, he's the boss, shows the fact that we have too much partisanship in our
0: country today.
1: So yes, I'll be critical of Cuomo and- or whoever else, when I do something wrong and they're off those rails, I'll say it.
0: So let me ask you that. Uh, Governor Cuomo has been very complimentary of the president. Is he wrong?
1: Well, go- well he has to be, and the gov- our president has made that very clear, and I've told you that before, He's saying, you need to show gratitude towards me. He's also been very, very critical of the president at times. And I think, I think, again, if you look at the national strategy we have in our country and how far we are behind other countries and how high our death rate is and how the fact we still do not have a coherent plan for testing, tracking and tracing the virus, just like his own CDC, just like his own doctors are telling us we need to have, I think we should all be concerned. I mean, this is a fiasco, and you can see it in the approval ratings. They continue to go down. And you can dig your heels in and say, this is great, but, or you can look at it and say, look, it, our country is going to have a serious economic crisis for months, if not years to come, because we still don't have a plan in place.
0: Well, Nate, you're running for one of the most unpopular Congress of all time. Um, what is something you think Congress has done wrong? So,
1: well, Congress should have put more money in regular people's hands. I think the fact that they gave most of the money away to big businesses, I think we should all be aggravated and infuriated by the fact that a lot of this money is being taken by the biggest businesses in America. It should be going into regular people, small businesses' hands. And I think that right now, a lot of people need some help. And I told you in the beginning of the call, our staff is reaching out to people and trying to make sure they need help and they have the help and the assistance they have. But I'm a small campaign. I'm a grassroots campaign. They need support from government. And I think for a long time in this country, we've been heard over and over again that government is useless. It can't do anything right. And the fact that we're not funding government, the fact that we're not helping the regular guy, and we're bailing out the biggest businesses in America, again, when we've been through this bailout shenanigans so many times in the past, I think should be upsetting for a lot of Americans. And when I go to Washington, I'm going to demand that regular people, people first, are the focus of our government.
3: Nate, uh, New York 27 is very much, I think, a microcosm of, of the country in a sense. It's uh, urban, suburban, rural. When you're out and about talking to constituents in any way you can, now being socially distant, um, what do you hear about the desire to get back in business? Uh, there was a rally last week, as you know, uh, headed by Russ Thompson, about the need to start to reopen businesses. Uh, what, what are you hearing from people that you talk to on a regular basis about that approach?
1: Everybody wants to get back to business. Everybody, but you can't get back to business until you have a healthcare solution in place that tests, tracks, and traces the virus. And we still don't have it, and we still don't even have testing. If you if you were sick right now, either of you, and you had you felt holy cow, maybe I have COVID. Are you confident you could get a test? And how many months are we into this virus? Now you guys know I have family overseas. My wife's from South Korea originally. I met her. She went to UB. I met her, and we and we've been together for. 20-plus years. But her family in South Korea has testing available to them. Nobody has medical bankruptcies because of this issue. And people are back to work because there are procedures and plans in place. Now, we spend billions of dollars every single year protecting South Korea. That's the truth. They're one of our allies, and we've been with them for 70-plus years. They fought with us in Vietnam. They fought with us in the Middle East. And we fund their national defense, How the heck do they have a system in place of testing, tracking, and tracing, and we don't? That should make everybody in America angry. Now, do we have to get back to work? Yes. Now, let's follow the guidelines the president's own task force laid out, which was to make sure you have 14 14 days of decline in the virus, and that we have a testing, tracking strategy in place. Those are his own guidelines. The problem we have right now is he's talking out both sides of his mouth. Do this, but don't do this. It's all my power. It's the governor's rights. It's a fiasco. And, and I, I think that I, one of the problems you have here is that people, they had a vested interest in making President Trump successful. I get that because government, as usual, didn't work for a lot of people, especially people in NY27. So they wanted to believe that he would be successful. But eventually, you got to say, maybe this isn't working. We can't double down on this guy. Meanwhile, we're going to go back to politics as usual and, and elect this millionaire guy. Who's from a billionaire family? Who fired all these people in Western New York? Who is completely out of touch? Who didn't like Trump? Now he likes Trump, and we're going to go back to that strategy for NY27. I think people do want something different. I think I represent an indep- independent voice. I've been an independent voice from the get go. No one tells me what to do. You guys know it, and I'll be an independent voice in Washington.
0: Nate, you know I'm looking at your uh, at, at your Twitter, and it's tough to to convince people you're independent. When earlier in this interview, you said that President Trump was to blame for the high percentage of COVID-19 cases in the United States. Do you think that's the right message to get the independent vote? Listen, I'm not trying to sell out to get the vote. I'm saying what's right. I I say this to you every time I talk to you.
1: I don't have strategists telling me what to say or what not to say to convince people to vote for me. I'm going to speak the truth and let people decide whether they want someone who's a truth talker in, the, in Washington or someone who's going to hold the party line and say what they want to hear. I can look at the president on a daily basis and realize every day the messaging changes. I can look at the facts, facts, girl. the fact that we have 4% of the world's population and 25%
0: and growing of the total death rate. But what did the president do to cause that? He's the boss. Okay, well, well, Andrew Cuomo is the governor of New York State. Is it his fault that we're the highest state of COVID-19 cases? I'm, I'm sure he,
1: every day he gets on the air and there's things that he says that I could do wrong or we could do better, but he's trying to listen to the doctors. But you have, the buck stops with the president. Okay, don't talk to me about some mayor or some governor. We have 50 states, and do you want 50 different strategies for attacking the virus, or do you want one unified strategy where you can leverage the mighty power of the president of the United States and this great nation to attack this virus. He said he's a wartime president, and he's, he, he does not act like a wartime president. He acts like he's confused, and I mean, let's talk
0: about the bleach for a second. Do you think that was a, a smart thing to say the other day? Well, it's not what he said. It was taken out of context. Um, However, well,
3: Let me jump in here, Joe. I thought that the comments were, were really dangerous and ridiculous and that the president has to be more careful about the way he speaks about potential cures, if you will, because uh, that, I thought, was totally unfounded and he should have not said that. Whether you're, you're quoting him directly or not, I thought it was a very dangerous thing to say. But I think the president feels desperate to try to get the economy back rolling and get people back to work. So I felt like he was grasping at straws.
1: Well, that's the problem. He doesn't have to grasp at straws. We are not South Korea. We're the United States. All he has to do is say, we are going to put a plan in place that has been the plans in these other countries where people are getting back to work. And you don't have to... This isn't isn't magic. You can test, track, and trace. He has to figure out a way to use the mighty industrial power of the United States to produce enough tests for everybody to have available testing. Figuring out a way to get together, to create a, a tracking policy, and then figure out a way to fund treatment of the virus so people don't spread the virus continually. Let me tell everybody that's listening right now, there is going to be a second wave. We know that by listening to scientists and talking to the scientists. We're still not ready. Forget about January. Forget about February. Forget about March. Forget about opening up in May because we still don't have a plan to get ready for the second wave of this. And we're going to keep repeating this cycle over and over again, where I'm going to have to come on your show in a couple more months, and you're going to be like, well, didn't the president do this good this week? And I'm going to say, well, what about the fact that we're not ready for next week? This is not right, Joe. You know it. Anybody who looks at this objectively and looks at what's happening on a daily basis knows this ain't right. And if it was Cuomo in that seat or Nancy Pelosi – I saw Nancy Pelosi on the radio this morning, on the television this morning. I wasn't proud of her either. I think there's a leadership failure across the board – And we need to think about the type of people we send to Washington again. Maybe we should send people that aren't millionaires and billionaires to Washington. Maybe we should send people to Washington like me, who grew up working class, understands what regular people are going through right now, who do not have a paycheck coming in the house.
0: Nate, let me me just ask one more time. Uh, What policy or lack of policy is Donald Trump responsible for that brought more cases of COVID-19 to the United States?
1: We still do not have a testing policy for the entire nation. When the countries that have tackled this problem have a national testing policy, he's still just winging it. If I could say one word about him on a daily basis, it's winging it. Now, he, and he also says things that are simply not true over and over again. And Joe, you better start holding him accountable for it because you have responsibility sitting in that seat.
0: When he says huh.
1: he's going to disappear as a miracle in April, well, guess what? We got one week left in, in April. Yeah, left.
0: yeah. And, 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 I, and I said it was wrong for him to put a date on it in April. I did say that.
1: Well, you keep saying it because if you think what he did last week and what he's going to do next week and the fact that we still don't have a testing policy. And like I said, Joe, if you get sick, God forbid you need a test because you're not going to have one or you're going to struggle to find one. And that's unacceptable in the greatest country in the world. You should be as angry as me about this. You can get outside and beep your horns and say we need to get back to work. Well, guess what? We do not have these the system in place to follow the government's own guidelines, Trump's own <laughs> guidelines about getting back to work.
0: I, I was not in my car beeping the horn uh, on Monday. By the way, uh, <laughs> I, I was just trying. I'm just trying to point to a policy that that the president did wrong, that the governor did right, and why the governor is getting praised by you while the president is getting the complete opposite. That that's all I'm asking for.
1: The government. Forget Cuomo. I'm not going to defend him right now. Let's talk about the the president first. What did he not do right? We still do not have a national system of testing, tracking, and tracing, which every single country in the world that has gotten back to work has. We still have no mechanism. All right,
0: so what would your advice to him be to get that testing testing policy into place?
1: Use the war powers as president. To use the mighty industry of the United States to produce the tests that we need to make sure that we can test and then track where this virus is going. Other countries are using technology and strategies to make sure we know where people who have a virus are moving to. We're not even close to what they're doing in South Korea or Germany or these other countries. And these are countries with much smaller economies than the United States. I keep, when I see them every single day, I'm like, when are you gonna rise to the occasion? What are you waiting for? What are you gonna say, okay, this is my moment to stand up and be the man that I said I was. When he, when he ran for president at the, De- the Republican National uh, Convention, he said, in his words, I'm the only one who can fix this. And now his words are, I'm
3: not responsible.
1: It's up to the governors.
3: What a joke. Nate, let me ask you about what you, uh, you tweeted about Dr. Deborah Birx. Uh, you know, I, I do find some comfort in hearing what the medical people have to say, especially Dr. Anthony Fauci, who I think is, uh, you know, a straight-up guy who really speaks the truth. But you said that Burks has her science down. She also has her spin down. Do you think that they're towing the Trump line? Or, you know, what, what did you mean by that?
1: Well, I thought, listen, I'm, listen I, I think she's a good scientist. And I think she's under great pressure every single day. You can see the pressure on her face. But when I see someone ask her point blank, was it wrong for the president to talk about injecting disinfectant into your body? And she mumbles on for 10 minutes about test studies and this and that. It will not answer the question. I think people would feel really assured if she said it was wrong, it was a mistake, let's move on. Instead of saying that, she will not address, she will not. It's like this is a country that holds leaders accountable. This is a country that says, look, it, you're not better than me. You're not a king. We're gonna to go to you and say, look at you you said something stupid. Admit it, let's move on and fix it. Instead we're gonna pretend we didn't see what we saw with our own eyes? When did America become a place where we don't look at reality? Look, I don't care who you are. If you're in a leadership position and you wanna be in a leadership position, you you should be held accountable for the things you say. And we shouldn't be in a place where we have to forget what we saw five minutes ago. So when she's not willing to say it was a stupid thing to say, or in maybe nicer terms, it was something he shouldn't have said. It was a mistake. People make mistakes. He's under pressure. Every would have, would have felt like, great, okay, we can move on from this. But when you per- try to pretend it didn't really happen or try to spin around it, it makes everybody terribly nervous because we are not following reality. We're following an alternative reality that he's making up every single day.
3: Do you think that Fauci is more of a realist?
1: I think, Fauci. look at Fauci. Did you see the Brad Pitt thing last night? I did.
3: I thought that was very well done.
1: <laughs> I think me too. I think Fauci is great. And I think he is under massive pressure to try to, to, to uh, I don't know, I, I just just cushion the things the president is saying. Because the stuff the president is saying is just so out there that Fauci has to, like, keep the one that's trying to reassure America. And I have great respect for both of them. I can't imagine the pressure they're under. Um, But I wish the president would just sit down and let the doctors do the talking.
0: As always, thank you for joining us. Always appreciate you, and uh, we'll be talking soon, okay? Take care, Joe. See you later. All right. That is Nate McMurray. He is running for Congress in NY27. Coming up next, State Senator Chris Jacobs will join us. And... Brenda, let's hope it's as good as that last interview.
3: (laughs) I look forward to
0: it. All right. Well, coming up next, we're gonna get an update from ABC News, and then Alan Harris will get you all the local headlines, including an up dated forecast and like I said after that state senator Chris Jacobs who is running for the same seat as Nate McMurray is running for will join us at 1106 and right after the 1130 news we will be joined by Dr Mike Menio taking us to the governor's noon briefing here on News Radio 930 WBEN Buffalo